From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. This past weekend, we celebrated the Feast of the Epiphany, when the three magi followed yonder star to God's perfect light, to paraphrase the old song. By gazing at the stars, people from near and far were drawn to Christ, a reminder that woven into the very fabric of the universe, God reveals God's self, guiding us deeper into God's mystery and deeper into an encounter with Christ. What was true more than 2,000 years ago remains true today. Stars, meteorites, planets, the mysteries of space still speak to us of God and God's dream for creation. And the Society of Jesus continues to be on the forefront of discerning God in the stars. More than 30 asteroids have been named for Jesuits. There are a similar number of craters on the moon bearing Jesuit names. And based on the work of today's guest, it's quite possible that the Society of Jesus will find itself with a few more astral namesakes in the not-so-distant future. Brother Bob Mackey is one of the world's foremost experts in the study of meteorites, and his work has been instrumental in OSIRIS-REx, a recent NASA mission that might reveal new insight into the earliest moments of the universe. Today, he talks to us about his work, his vocation, and what he hopes to learn as he continues to comb through space, that final frontier. Brother Bob studied physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Washington University in St. Louis before entering the Society of Jesus in 2001. Between 2011 and 2013, he studied theology at Boston College School of Theology and Ministry, during which time he also constructed a new ideal gas pycnometer for measuring meteorite densities. Brother Mackey joined the Vatican Observatory in July 2013, where he now studies meteorite physical properties in the observatory's meteorite lab. In August of 2014, Brother Mackey became the curator of the Vatican collection of 1,200 meteorite specimens. And now, here he is, Brother Bob Mackey. Brother Bob Mackey, welcome to AMDG. We're excited to talk about meteorites with you today. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, well, you are one of the world's uh, foremost experts in the study of meteorites. So briefly, can you explain exactly what that means, what the field includes, and, and what you're really hoping to discover through your research? So meteorites are basically rocks from space uh, that have fallen to the surface of the Earth. Most of them come from the asteroids, although a few of them come from uh, places like Mars or the Moon. And so they are great ways of uh, trying to study the solar system by directly having material in the laboratory that, that we can work with. Uh, and these are some of the earliest, the, the ones at least that come from asteroids are some of the, the uh, oldest rocks in the solar system. They formed at about the same time as the rest of the solar system formed. And so they contain within them a history of the solar system and, and the, the origin of the solar system, which gives us a wonderful thing to study in the laboratory. It's, it's a little uh, uh, record of, of the early history that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. Now, my research involves studying physical properties, density, porosity, and uh, other physical properties like that. And I've become quite uh, experienced at these measurements. I uh, have measured these properties for probably more specimens than anyone else. And that's where my real area of expertise is. 
And people want to know things like density and porosity because they're important for understanding the structure of the asteroids themselves and also putting constraints on models that we have for various other uh, properties that are important for asteroids, how asteroids behave, and, and even how they formed. Can you briefly um, say what is porosity? Porosity is the amount of empty space within the meteorite, so uh, the amount of pore space, uh, oh, which gotcha. is uh, uh, quite a bit for some meteorites. Some of them are 40% are porous or more. And asteroids themselves can have even higher porosity uh, because there's the pore space that's inside the rock, but there's also the pore space that's between the rocks in the asteroids. When, when an asteroid is composed of just a pile of, of rocks loosely held together by gravity, uh, the space between adds even more porosity. Um, at the risk of asking a dumb question, uh, my dad studied geology uh, in college, and so um, I, I, I know nothing about geology other than uh, what he's told me about rocks. Are there parallels between studying meteorites, right? As you said, rocks from space and studying, um, you know, the rocks that, uh, that are already among us. There, there are plenty of parallels. In fact, most planetary scientists who study meteorites, uh, what we call meteoriticists, most of them are geologists by training. I actually mm -hmm. came into it from a very different direction. I came from physics, uh, and I had to learn about meteorites when I started studying meteorites uh, as a graduate student. So if you came by way of physics, that, me that means you had kind of the density, por porosity uh, mindset already. You were kind of how fast things are moving. I obviously, I'm not a physicist. Uh -huh. um, wh what, I guess, what was the, the base of knowledge that you had? And how did you then make the jump to meteorites? Uh, my jump to meteorites was... Um, a little bit from the outside. Uh, so I did my undergraduate work at MIT in physics, and I wanted to be an astrophysicist studying stars and galaxies and, and uh, other astrophysical scale phenomena. And uh, I went to Washington University for grad school the first time around. And uh, there I was in a laboratory studying pre-solar grains. These are little bits of stardust that somehow or other managed to uh, get incorporated into meteorites without having been melted down and processed and, and mixed in with everything else. So they still contained, uh, they, they still were as they were in the, the stars that formed them, the stars and other astrophysical phenomena where they formed. So by studying them in the laboratory, you could put constraints on the conditions that are going on in the stars. But to find these things, you find them embedded in some primitive kinds of meteorites. And so I kind of came into meteorites sort of sideways through the study of these, these uh, individual grains. Um, and uh, then eventually, after I became a Jesuit, Brother Guy Consolmagno, who was the curator of meteorites at the Vatican Observatory at the time, uh, invited me one summer to come out and work with him uh, in Rome, working with the meteorites of the Vatican Observatory, uh, studying physical properties, doing these measurements on density and porosity, which I've become so very experienced in. Uh, and so that was my real introduction to meteorites as something to study in themselves. Um, let's let's back up. Let's go to that. How, how did you become a Jesuit? What, what, where did this this kind of the interest in astrophysicists and um, and astrophysics, I guess, and, and, you know, the vocation to a Jesuit, where do those things overlap? I think I was always called to religious life, 
But like most people, I kind of had my other plans. I uh, had this idea that I'd be a, a Nobel Prize winning PhD physicist and, uh, and religious life really didn't fit into those plans. So, uh, but at the time I also uh, found that the research that I was doing at Washington University really didn't uh, capture my attention very well. Uh, I found myself in the laboratory looking at the clock thinking, have I been in here long enough to sort of justify the work that I've done today? Mm -hmm. uh, and you can't do science that way. Uh, you really have to really be enthused and, and fully engaged in what you're doing to really be a good scientist. And uh, I was not at that point at that, in that point in my life. And uh, at the same time, there was a really great retreat program through the Catholic Student Center at Washington University. And uh, during one of those retreats, I sort of said, hmm, I think maybe I might be called to religious life. And uh, then I started uh, discerning my vocation at that point. And as part of the discernment, I actually left Washington University. I got a consolation master's degree instead of the PhD. Um, but uh, then I, I taught for a couple of years at Bowling Green State University while I was uh, discerning my vocation and then entered the Jesuits in 2001. And how, um, how has religious life added to your, uh, your research? Like what, how have you added that, that layer of, of spirituality or, or religiosity or both into um, the, the, the science you're doing or, or have you, or do you, do you keep those things pretty separate? In the context of my Jesuit life, I found research is something that I can really engage in. Um, that summer that Brother Guy Consomano invited me to go out there and work with him, I found myself working in the laboratory all the time. So much, in fact, that the superior of the community kind of kicked me out and said, hey, you're in Italy. Enjoy Italy. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, but there's so many more meteorites to measure. <laughs> so much stardust. Uh, the the uh, Vatican Observatory itself. Um, is the purpose of the Vatican Observatory is to be assigned to the world of the compatibility of faith and science. The motto that uh, Pope Pius XI gave us when we moved out to Castel Gandolfo in, in the 1930s is Deum Creatorum Venite Adoremus. That's uh, come, let us adore God the Creator. And I think that really kind of summarizes our approach to science very well. Is There's this wonderful universe that God created and... Uh, what when we study this universe, it's a way of appreciating and adoring God. So basically, for us, doing science is a form of worship. Um, have you always felt? Uh, do you think that's always been part of your vocational call? Like that that initial? Uh, I like. I'm interested in, in when did you initially become interested just in the universe and studying the universe? And do you think that interest, that passion, was? you know, a desire to study, you know, the God of the universe as well. I have always been interested in the universe. Uh, my dad, I should say, was was a geologist. Uh, and, there we go. <laughs> uh, or at least by training. He actually was an Air Force pilot, but his, you know, his background is geology. And, uh, and he was very interested in space exploration. He would go to conferences about space exploration. He'd come back in, in those days, uh, you have the, the Voyager missions, the Viking missions, and all this stuff, bringing back the first close-up pictures of the outer planets or of Mars. 
And it was just such a fascinating thing to, to see those, to learn about what's going on out there, uh, to, to learn about the greater universe, the, the, uh, uh, the stars and galaxies and nebulae and, and all that stuff. And, and even today, uh, it's just really wonderful to be participating actively in that space exploration myself. Uh, I'm actually a, a member of the science team for two missions, OSIRIS-REx and LUCY. Uh, OSIRIS-REx recently brought back some material from the asteroid Bennu, and we're studying it in the laboratory. Uh, and, uh, and the LUCY mission is going out to uh, asteroids that are uh, at the same orbit as Jupiter, um, in locked in what's called Lagrange points uh, near the orbit of Jupiter. Why don't we um, take this one at a time, and maybe you can dig into kind of Osiris Rex and, and what that what that you know, has been like to work on, and and what you're hoping to, or what the team is hoping to discover um, through through what's recently kind of come back from Bennu. Osiris Rex brought uh, quite a bit of material back from Bennu, um, and. Currently, we are in the process of, of uh, looking at it. There's a number of stones as well as uh, finer material and dust. Um, and this stuff is kept in very pristine conditions. So the difference between something returned from an asteroid and a meteorite, which comes from an asteroid, is that the meteorites have entered through the Earth's atmosphere. They've been exposed to the terrestrial environment, including all of the various things that are in the air and on the ground. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, if you're looking for, for instance, the building blocks of life, amino acids and, and other such things, uh, anything you find has already, in a meteorite, has already been exposed to uh, all of the stuff of life of the Earth. And so you can't really separate out and say what's, what's original to the object. Whereas this stuff we brought back fresh from an asteroid, kept it isolated from the Earth environment. It's, it's in a glove box that's, that's uh, hermetically sealed and, and uh, has a pure nitrogen environment. Um, and by studying this stuff, then uh, we can really see what the, the rocks and what the conditions are on the asteroid itself. And uh, you know, look for these amino acids and other building blocks of life. Um, it also... The process of entering through the atmosphere is very destructive. You know, you, you heat things up very much and, and uh, ablate away a lot of material. If you have stuff that's very weak, it just disappears. Um, so the, the meteorites are kind of the strong stuff that's left over. Whereas doing a sample return mission, we actually get to preserve some of the weak stuff as well. So we can kind of compare the, um, what we find in, in this specimen with what we find for similar meteorites. And, uh, and, and really see what is it that we're not getting in our meteorites. How often um, have folks been able to study uh, the, the weaker stuff, like you're saying? Is this, is this a, a brand new um, uh, bit of scientific research? There have been very few asteroid return missions. Uh, so there were two that were done by J the Japanese. Uh, there's Hayabusa and Hayabusa 2. Uh, Hayabusa went to the asteroid Itokawa and brought back about 40 milligrams or so of material. Hayabusa 2 went to the asteroid Ryugu and brought back uh, a little under 6 grams of material. Um, and this uh, mission, OSIRIS-REx, has brought back far more material than either of those. Uh, we don't yet 
fully know exactly how much because there's still some in the collection unit that we haven't been able to extract because of some technical issues. But the stuff we have extracted is 70 grams of material. So, you know, an order of magnitude more than anything that's been brought back before. Um, is there anything that you can tell us so far about what you've found? Or, or even if, if not, maybe maybe the research can't bear out yet, but your own kind of impressions on, I mean, this is obviously a pretty momentous um, you know, achievement. Uh, so so what, what have you felt or, or seen or observed just being a part of it? It's, it's been really incredible. Uh, my role, by the way, is, is uh, I created an, ins an instrument called a pycnometer that is used for measuring the density and porosity of, of these specimens. And uh, we haven't yet gotten to the stage of research where uh, I've actually done any measurements on it. That will actually happen in a week or so. Uh, but uh, uh, I've been present when we installed the pycnometer uh, in the same facility where the specimens are stored. And so I had the opportunity to see it for, with my naked eye, with, with my own eyes, I could see the, these uh, asteroid materials. And it's, it's really special. It's, uh, it's really something to be invited to participate and even more special to be in the room with the material at the same time. Yeah, I bet. I bet that's so cool. I, I imagine you, know, you going into these situations as a, as a Jesuit brother, um, you know, in, in NASA or, or with whoever you're working with, um, do folks kind of uh, meet you with kind of an upturned eyebrow? Uh, is there any conversation um, about, you know, your own kind of what you do in your free time? Um, because I, I imagine, um, you know, I, I know I've read that, that part of what this initiative might uncover, right, are, are, are insights into, um, you know, the origins of life, right, on, on the planet. Um, so are people asking you, uh, how you reconcile, you know, A with B, or, or or how do those kind of interactions play out if they happen at all? I, I think most scientists really kind of understand uh, the the role of science and faith pretty well. Uh, the abundance of persons of faith among scientists is about the same as that is of the regular population. And so if you have a lot of Catholics in an area, your scientists are going to be Catholics. You have a lot of atheists in an area, your scientists are going to be atheists. It's a, it pretty much balances with the population. And so, you know, people bring their own faith into, into, uh, uh, into their understanding of what's, what's going on. Uh, and so they, they, they know very well that I'm a religious brother, that I work at the Vatican Observatory, but they respect me very much as a scientist. And, you know, occasionally I've had the, the occasional conversation about faith, usually not about faith in science, just faith in general. Uh, but, uh, I have to say I had this, this wonderful, uh, interaction, uh, about 10 years ago when I was, uh, doing some work with the Apollo moon rocks and again at NASA and I'm working side by side with, with one of the, uh, NASA curators. And, uh, he kind of turns to me as we're working and he just in casual conversation kind of says, so what's it like to work in the Vatican? And I kind of thought about it for a second and said, I don't know, what's it like to work in NASA? Because like, <laughs> he understood it's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful place. You get a lot of interesting perks and, and it's great to be there. But, you know, when it comes to the actual day-to-day -day work, it's the same as everyone else. <laughs> right. It's still, it's still a job, right? I wonder if you ever encounter, and this might be more on like kind of the, the people of faith side, is there ever a, a kind of a, a fear of knowing, a fear of, of 
you know, like, like going deeper? Because I imagine like you're studying the universe, right? The the questions are probably limitless that you want to pose and, and you want to dig into all this cool stuff. Um, and, and, you know, the potential to uncover stuff is just so incredible. Um, you know, but I, I, I imagine that there is maybe not among the scientists that you're working with, but probably people you, you know, you run across in your everyday life. Is, is there a fear of knowing more? And, and, and if so, how do you, um, again, as a person of faith and a person of science and, and someone who has reconciled these things quite well, how do you respond to that fear? I don't generally encounter that fear, or at least not expressed as such. Um, there are people out there who certainly do have strong negative opinions towards scientific uh, re- uh, scientific studies, but generally it's uh, it's because they don't want to be contradicted in uh, in what they already hold. But generally speaking, they're not concerned about what with what I might find out there. They're concerned with uh, kind of rejecting the existing science as it is, and so. Um, that's an entirely different conversation, really. Um, and, and they're really a minority, a very vocal minority, but a minority in the population. There's, uh, people in general respect the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of learning about this, this wonderful universe that we're in. Um, Jesuits obviously um, have quite a number of stars named after them, and and uh, you know you and, and brother Guy and um, are, are just two of the examples of, of Jesuits that are, are are working in science and in this field in particular. Um, what about Ignatian spirituality? Do you think, um, or not? Do you think, but in your own in your own life, your own experience, what about Ignatian spirituality um, allows you to go deeper or or engage these questions um, in in a way that perhaps um, you know is is not as as prevalent in other um, I don't know spiritual traditions? There is a phrase common in Ignatian spirituality: finding God in all things, and uh, it is that particular motivation. That's why you find Jesuits in pretty much every field uh, and any pursuit of knowledge um, is that, you know, we're not looking to uh, bring God to these things. God's already present. We're looking to discover God present in, uh, it, in, in all of the different pursuits. And it's not just the sciences. It's, it's uh, the arts. It's social justice, it's, uh, politics is everything. Um, agreed. You know, I, uh, I'm curious if you're a, uh, kind of a science fiction fantasy guy. Uh, and if you are, um, how do these kinds of stories fuel our imagination? And in particular, how, how do you think the kind of Catholic imagination is uniquely, um, I don't know, ready to think about stories in this kind of speculative fiction, uh, area and then bring them into dialogue with the, with the real world? Well, once again, there's a concept of finding God in all things. And in literature, it's a great way to uh, explore the questions, the great questions of theology in ways that are not um, kind of in your face or, or not too academic. Uh, but you find that, that uh, you know, great authors like J.R.R. Tolkien, for instance, uh, Gene Wolfe, uh, they they really use their fantasy and science fiction writing to try to dig at the real un, 
underlying truths, strip away all of the uh, uh, all of the normally identifiable, obviously Catholic stuff, the the uh, um, the, the surface level stuff, and really dig deep uh, and look at at the underlying uh, uh, reality of of uh, you know, the universe and and um, and God's relation to the universe in in fundamentally uh, revealing ways, I think. <laughs> Is there any um, particular story? Um, you mentioned Tolkien, you mentioned Gene Wolfe. Are there any particular authors or stories that were uh, formative to you in your own kind of vocation? Uh, I don't really have a good answer to that question. Um, I think... Uh, all of the random authors and random everything else sort of mixed together and forms a background to me. Uh, and I can't really point to any, any one that I sort of like read over and over again and, or anything I particularly prayed with or anything like that. Um, I, uh, I think just in general, the, the kind of the idea of expanding my perspective beyond just the mundane and looking beyond that really did inform my ability to recognize a religious vocation and to explore it myself. What spiritual significance do you think stars have for us today? Uh, and what, what might they be revealing to us of God's creation? Perhaps not in the, uh, the nitty gritty uh, uh, scientific terms, but broadly speaking for the lay folks like us, like me out here that are, are just kind of fascinated um, to look up at the sky. I have a friend who's an anthropologist who studies the sort of religious experience of, of, uh, of astronomers, astronauts, people who are involved in space exploration. And the contact with the, the cosmos, with the, the grandeur of the universe at large, really is a, a point of contact with uh, with the divine, it's it's a it's it's an opportunity. It's a, something that that uh, catalyzes an experience that uh, takes us way beyond just ourselves and way beyond the mundane, um, and and gives us a uh, a point of entry for for uh, really experiencing God. What um, what are some of the other big questions that you're hoping to um, tackle uh, or pursue in the next? you know, year, two years, three years, and, and what other missions? I know you're on at least one other mission right now. What other missions are on the horizon? So um, I'm involved with OSIRIS-REx, which I've described already, uh, but there's also the Lucy mission, which is going out to what are called Trojan asteroids. These are asteroids that um, are at the same distance in their orbit as Jupiter, but are uh, about 60 degrees ahead or behind Jupiter. Uh, in their orbit. They're, they're locked at what's called Lagrange points. It's a, uh, sta a stability point in, in orbits. Um, and the thing is, we expect that these have been trapped there since the early solar system, and that these may contain some types of asteroids that otherwise were ejected in the early days of the solar system. The fact that they were that these particular ones were trapped in these, these points of stability kind of held them there while everything else got ejected. And so we hope that they will provide even more insight into the early formation of the solar system. Uh, 
the mission Lucy is actually named after the uh, Australopithecus. Uh, and it's sort of because we expect these, these types of asteroids to sort of be a missing link, much like Lucy is sometimes referred to as a missing link. <laughs> well, Brother Bob, thank you for being with us on AMDG today. Hope you'll come back sometime and talk about uh, the next next round of, of Stardust Discoveries. All right. Thank you. It's been great to be here. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, Kristen Smith, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get our weekly email reflection series. Now discern this by visiting Jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>